when I'm running on a trail I've, or in a race, I've never once thought of or, or, or even questioned, you know, someone else's background or creed or ethnicity. It's like there's a, a deep sense of oneness when we're trying to pursue physical goals. And that in and of itself helps us to, to expand past these realms that, that divide us, like the ones that the mind creates. And it, in essence, it's like physical pursuits can connect more directly with the soul's reality than most religions care to even pursue. Welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Today's guest is the filmmaker Sanjay Rao. Sanjay worked in the human rights and international development sectors for 15 years and in over 40 countries before focusing his love for photography and storytelling into filmmaking. His short films have screened at over 120 festivals, including Tribeca, St. Louis, and Locarno. Sanjay's first feature, Food Chains, won a host of awards, including a James Beard Award, as well as the Brit Doc Impact Award as one of the most important films of 2015. A lifelong runner, Sanjay was happy to lose the pounds he gained eating Mexican food in farm worker towns during the making of this movie and take on a project about running. His new film, 3100, Run and Become, opened in theaters fall 2018 and is now available on Amazon and iTunes. All right, well, welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. I'm excited to have Sanjay Rawal today. I first learned about Sanjay listening to Mind Pump. Actually, the, the, my soul brothers at Mind Pump sent me an email and said, I think you got to check this guy Sanjay out. He's really cool, and I think you're going to love his message. So I went and watched 3100 Run and Become and, and listened to the podcast, and I said, I got to talk to that guy. And I got back in touch with Mind Pump and said, put me in touch. And so today we are making a great connection to share lots of love and exciting information with you. Sanjay, welcome to Living 4D with Paul Check. Paul, I am super excited and honored to be on the show with you. Thank you. I looked at, uh, to do a little background research for the interview, I went and looked and watched clips and trailers and chunks of of, of several of the videos, uh, documentaries you produced. I didn't realize you'd produced so many of them, man. It was uh, quite a little journey I went on. Yeah, I've been at it for about 10 years or so. Yeah, well, it's. I love the topics that you've uh, invested your time and energy into. They're all beautiful things that are, I think, you know, informative and uplifting and inspiring. Um, you know, one of them about the food. Now, that one's sort of a wake up call, but uh, we'll get into a little bit of each of them. And so uh, one of the things that I learned is that you were raised in a farming family. I thought that was really cool. I'd love it if you can give us a little overview of your life and how you ended up uh, studying with and working with Sri Chimnoy. Yeah. In, in, a, in a nutshell, Paul, my parents are both from India. Uh, my dad went to graduate school in the US, however, and got his first job in Africa, in Nigeria. And wow. strangely enough, my mother got her first job as a professor in the same university in a little tiny town in southern Nigeria. And that's where I was born. 
But Nigeria wasn't a great place to raise a kid in the 70s, so they quickly relocated to Boulder and then to Oakland, California, where I was raised. They both had PhDs, and every stereotype about an Indian family is uh, pretty accurate in the sense that their American dream for me was to succeed with more education than they'd received. And so that didn't leave many other options besides being like a, a, a surgeon or a, some sort of specialty uh, medical professional. That said, when I was doing my undergraduate at Cal Berkeley, after a couple of years, I realized that none of the great things I was learning, none of the sparkling, interesting, provocative ideas that I was being taught, none of those things were filling the, the deep, gaping hole in my heart. And I realized that the outer education could never take the place of, of an inner education. And so after I finished my undergraduate, with the blessings of my parents, I moved to New York City, where the Indian mystic Sri Chinmoy was based. And I think I'm one of a, just a handful of people that moved to New York City to find inner peace. <laughs> I think so. I think so. It's, uh, I hate to say it, but of all the places I've lectured, I lectured at uh, uh, the East Coast Alliance, ECA New York, it's called, for I think 13 years running right in downtown Manhattan at I think it's Times Square there at the Marriott Marquis there and oh my god I I would have to walk all over just to find a little piece of grass or a tree to do some tai chi with and I just felt the poor place was just so desperate for some nature and it doesn't sleep that place that's true that the interesting thing I found though is from an eastern spiritual perspective where the the goal is a sense of universal oneness um, the realization of the creator of the supreme um, inhabiting each and every creature, obviously humans on earth. New York City looks to me in the best of ways like the future. We have people here from you know almost 200 countries speaking hundreds of languages, and everyone here finds a way to coexist and finds a way to, to, to develop a, a sense of community that is so rare unless someone is living in a planned community. Even in small, out-of-the-way, beautiful coastal or mountain towns, communities are divided by houses. They're divided by, by the necessity to have your own space. But in New York, we don't have our own space, and we're forced to share, and we're forced, forced to, to find the highest in the smallest little bits. A Navajo character in the movie 3100 Run and Become reminded me that Mother Nature exists under the asphalt as well. And so, <laughs> it does. <laughs> right? That's a, that's a great perspective. <laughs> so it's like, you know, it's like you have to struggle to find peace in New York. But when you make progress in New York, it, it, I, I believe it carries, carries you forward no matter where you might go afterwards. Are you familiar with the Hindu Muslim mystic Kabir? Yeah, of course. Well, I love Kabir's teachings and... You know, he's he's one that really drives home that to truly live the spiritual life, you've got to engage life at the ground level. He he really gives the yogis a bashing for going off and hiding in caves and in the mountains. And as I'm sure you know, he had a wife and he held a job as a, you know, his work as a weaver. And he was he's he really uh, supports what you're sharing there. I mean, there, there are many different paths, of course, but it seems like modern mystics are tending towards the concept that the inner life and the outer life have to go together. 
And people have been preaching that since the 50s and, and since 1964 when Sri Chinmoy came to the West. And we see that more than ever. You literally, literally cannot find a corner of this earth where you can live, you could live unperturbed for more than a few years at a time. Someone's going to find you, you know, some digital signal's going to find you, some connection to the craziness of, of the world is going to find you. And if that's the case, you know, why not live in the heart of that chaos uh, like a warrior, like a hero? It reminds me, as you're talking, of a, a, a beautiful story I, I once heard in, or read in my studies, and it talks about this billionaire, American billionaire, who had all sorts of mental, emotional, and health challenges and went from doctor to doctor and therapist to therapist and wasn't getting any results, and he was getting real desperate and one day somebody that knew him said, I know of a very, very amazing wise man, sage healer that can help you, but he's in the Himalayan mountains. And not only will you have to fly to India, but you're going to have to do a lot of travel on foot for many miles through the mountains with a, with a guide to get there. But I'm quite sure he can help you. And he said, I'll do anything. So he embarked on this long journey and made it all the way up into the mountains and eventually found this sage. And he was a scraggly looking old man with long hair and a matted beard. And the billionaire walks up to him and he looks at him and he says, if you're so poor, how can you actually help me? And the sage looked at him and he said, if you're so rich, why did you come all this way to get my help? <laughs> exactly. Oh, it's a great story. <laughs> I love that one because there's a lot of deep truth in there. <laughs> there's, there's so much truth in that. <laughs> so what I wanted to do is, is you know, of, of the many things we could talk about, my soul guided me to looking at each of your documentaries and and I thought because each of them carried a message that we could explore some of those messages and, and look at each of the documentaries. And, and I've laid out some questions for you based on my kind of the connection I got and the sense that I got. So I wanted to start with the ocean monk. How does that sound? That sounds great. This all sounds great, by the way. Thank you. Well, I was watching the trailer for the movie and, and reading about it. And I saw a Sri Chinmoy quote that just absolutely was mind-blowingly good. I mean, you know, I, I'm very connected to the message that comes from a person's heart. And, you know, you read someone like Kabir or Tagore or Rumi and and many others. In fact, one of my favorite books is The Drunken Mystic, was a, which is a collection of uh, Persian uh, poetry about God. And, it, and I can tell you, you can get some enlightenment experiences just reading that poetry. It just blow you right out of yourself into this you know, transcendent dimension. And I saw this quote that was on the website featuring the ocean monk. It says, above the toil of life, uh, excuse me, above the toil of life, my soul is a bird of fire winging the infinite. And I thought that is one beautiful, profound quote that points to a truth that most human beings realize, uh, or, or most human beings may not realize because it's beyond their intellect. And uh, what do you think he's saying there? I'd love to hear your take on it. I, I, I just love the way that quote makes me feel. And me too. Ocean, monk, 
Ocean Monk was my first film. I, I started it in 2009, and it's a, a short 19-minute film available on Vimeo, uh, anywhere where people uh, can access the internet, of course. And the, the film really explores my own personal life and the juxtaposition between what we talked about earlier, trying to find inner peace in New York City and trying to find waves in New York City. I grew up surfing in California. Uh-huh, and the film, the film was shot entirely in the winter and looks at some of the bleakest landscapes that anyone could possibly you know, think of surfing. And I say bleak in the sense that rather than kind of the pristine Arctic environments of, of northern Norway, of Iceland, you know, you're talking about taking a subway to a frozen beach and looking at the Manhattan skyline as you're trying to chase almost snow-capped waves. That said, the film explores the concept of the inner life and the outer life going together. And I made it just a year and a half or so after Sri Chinmoy left the physical. He passed away in 2007. And so it was a time in my life where I was trying to really grapple with the idea of having to get all of my guidance from the inner connection. I was really, really lucky to have spent 13 years um, living very close to him in New York and almost any major thing that I, I needed an answer to, I could literally ask him. And that guidance was clear, that guidance was powerful, and that guidance made me make very quick progress in my life. But after he passed, when I was left to my own devices and left to this treasure trove of teachings, you know, I had to, to look pretty deep within and go into places of silence that I hadn't really explored yet to reestablish and to refocus my connection with him. That's interesting. You know, I, I don't know if you know, I'm a medicine man, spirit guide, and I do a, a lot of, uh, you know, what I would call modern shamanism and I work in multiple dimensions and I communicate with people that aren't here anymore, but uh, they're definitely accessible through the, through the methodology that I use. Have you reached uh, Sri Chin, Chinmoy through your own heart connection? I mean, the great thing about having a, a realized spiritual master is they're always reaching you. Yes, yeah, true. So, Right, it, it's just a matter of keeping the door open. Yes, and, and that's the benefit of that type of a relationship. It just requires receptivity. It's, it's why people can legitimately say they follow the Buddha, they follow Krishna, they follow Jesus, they follow more modern masters that have passed beyond the mortal coil within the last, you know, decade or century. Those connections from those higher planes are always there. They're casting light, so to speak, upon us. We just have to keep our heart doors open. Yeah, it's kind of sad that with scientific materialism has come a very unfortunate closure to the way of relating to life, to nature, and the transcendent that was so common to native traditions. And, you know, we now have this environment where people think that those people are old, outdated, antiquated, and even often refer to them as stupid people. And it's, uh, it's really, uh, it's sort of a paradox, you know, that we've got all this advanced technology, yet we're, we're the most disconnected people I think we've ever been as a, as a collective. It's, it's, the, it's the key to life, right? Humility and the spiritual path and the path towards self-discovery is ultimately trying to merge our small, little, tiny egos 
with a much greater sense of self. And how many of us even value the idea of humility or obedience in our outer lives, much less in our inner lives? How are we supposed to listen to inner commands if we don't listen to other human beings? And I I think it's exactly what you said. It's this scientific mindset that focuses so much attention on the mind and individuality that we lose sight, not just of our connection to other living things, but our connection to realms within ourselves that literally are interconnected with the entire universe. You know, one of the paradoxes is that we, you know, the scientific materialist mindset is if it can't be weighed and measured, it's not real, but it overlooks the fact that matter is really spirit moving slowly so we can interact with it. I mean, that, that's, the, that's, that's the crux of my second film, Challenging Impossibility. Um, it's also available on Vimeo. Uh, but it looked at one night in 2004 when Sri Chinmoy, then aged 73 years old, performed a, a public weightlifting exhibition. And across the span of about four hours, his total workout exceeded 200,000 pounds. And, <laughs> and, he, and he's not exactly a... A young guy, either you know. I've, no, and he 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 didn't he didn't pursue any sort of like outer physical excellence either. And his philosophy, you know, which he displayed in front of like legends like Bill Pearl, Frank Zane, uh, Carl Lewis, was that outer power could be generated by inner peace. And the outer power that he put on display, and that and that film has been shown in hundreds of film festivals, including Tribeca and many other big ones, but that the demonstration that he, he, he put on was more an illustration for people's eyes and probably anything else one could imagine could be. Yes. You know, uh, I was raised in the, in the self-realization fellowship, uh, oh, wow. cool. teachings of Paramahansa Yogananda. My mother became a member of the self-realization fellowship when I was 12 and we used to go to the temple meetings most weekends and I got to interact with the monks. And when I was 15, I went to summer camp with the monks and, and got to spend a lot of time working with them, learning from them and getting as many questions as I could come up with answered. And while I was there, I befriended uh, one of the senior monks and uh, he was uh, a really amazing, powerful guy that even in his seventies was doing amazing things. Like one time the other monk, he didn't tell me this. He was too humble, but some of the other monks saw that I was hanging out with him and I was really into weightlifting as a kid. And he took me up into his room, which this was at the self-realization fellowship, uh, Lake shrine temple on just Mm. uh, up from sunset beach in in Los Angeles. And, uh, they have a windmill there and he lived in the very top of the windmill in a, in a beautiful dome room. And he had a weightlifting set and I was hanging out in there and we were talking and talking about weightlifting and just neat stuff. It was so cool to be with this, you know, he was a probably about five ten or, or so, but maybe about 220 pounds, but he was big barrel chested, big arms, strong, really strong looking guy. And I came out after visiting with him and one of the, uh, Couple, actually, a couple of the uh, uh, monks pulled me aside and they said, "Do you know how strong he is?" And I said, "I don't know, but he looks really strong." He said, "Well, one day we were doing some landscaping here, and there was a uh, they had a small 
bulldozer, you know what a bobcat is? Yeah. Yeah, a little bobcat, and they'd moved a bunch of rocks that were really heavy, and, and we were having to load these rocks into a truck, but the bobcat driver, I guess, had quit or something. Kaizen is the Japanese philosophy and science of constant and never-ending improvement. You may have heard it called Kani in the Western world. It's a principle we strive to embody here at the Czech Institute, and there's no better example of that than Paul's Czech Academy. Each year, we review the feedback from the students, faculty, and support staff. We look into the latest research on learning, and we use all of that to improve the academy. That means if your goal is to become a true master of holistic health and performance, there's never been a more exciting time to apply to the Czech Academy. For the 2019-2020 year, we are adding five brand new courses, including Walking Tall, an in-depth course on gait analysis, Practical Applications of Breathing, Posture and Movement, an online course that will teach you essential assessment and exercise techniques to achieve optimal breathing. Infant Development, another online course showing you how to assess for disruptions to motor skill development and exercise techniques to recover from those disruptions. Holistic Health and Performance for Women, a groundbreaking online course that dives deep into the theory and practice of training women. And our Golf Performance Specialist Online. This course will provide you with hours of in-depth training in assessment, coaching, proper exercise technique, and program design specifically for golfers. And that's just the start of our improvements to the Czech Academy. So if you embrace the principle of Kaizen like we do, if you have the commitment, passion, and dedication it takes to become a true master of holistic health and performance, then we invite you to apply to the Czech Academy now. Visit us online at checkinstitute.com forward slash academy to get started. And now, back to Living 4D with Paul Czech. And they said that the monks were like tag teaming. To, these rocks were so big it was taking like two, three monks together to lift one into the back of the truck. But there was one rock that was so big that even four of the monks couldn't pick it up. And, and um, he, uh, the, the monk that I'm talking about, he, he uh, saw them struggling. And uh, his name was Brother Triananda. And uh, Triananda, they said, Triananda walked over to us and he said, would you like some help? And he, they said, yes, please. And he said, stand aside. And they said he bent down and picked up this rock by himself and put it in the back of the truck and smiled and walked away. <laughs> As a, you know, when I, when I used to uh, read about Sri Chimnoy and because I was, you know, big into weightlifting and I would see his demonstrations and I read some books that had him in it. And I used to think, think of Brother Triananda whenever I would see Sri Chim, Chinmoy's uh, demonstrations. And, uh, and they also tell stories about Yogananda. And, you know, these monks are people that would never lie to anybody. They're not like, you know, of course, hippies hanging out, smoking pot and telling stories. But uh, uh, and I've actually read this, too. And, and, and some of these things I'm about to share were actually well documented. and They can be found in books. But when Yogananda first came to uh, the United States, one of the first places he went to was Boston. And he was giving a lecture in a huge theater there. And, uh, you know, like 
just like Sri Chinmoy would do to inspire people to realize these guys weren't, you know, just talking heads. He said, he said, well, I will do a demonstration for you. And he uh, stood on stage and he asked one of the policemen that were there because, because being a Hindu man, they were, they had, they were worried people might attack him or something. So they had a lot of cops at the uh, place there. And he asked, a policeman to come up on stage and he said please just try to move me and he just stood there and the cop couldn't move him he said get another one of your policemen well this kept going on and on until they had something like 13 policemen on stage and, and what would be like a rugby scrum and they couldn't even budge him at all and uh the people there realized that something's really going on because he was only like five foot one or two you know and then another time um he was doing a demonstration and he and he uh said, is there any doctors in the audience? And apparently there was like five or six doctors. So he called them up on stage and he laid on a table and he asked each one of them to take a pulse. So they had one on each radial pulse, one on each posterior tibial artery, and I guess one on his neck. And uh, then he said, please announce what pulse you're getting. And he adjusted his body so that each of them got a different pulse. And then he said, okay, let's do it again. And what he did is he rotated the pulses all around his body so that the numbers basically stayed the same, but they went to different locations in his body. And that blew the doctor's mind because they didn't even know that was possible. Yogic power is something else. And it's definitely far beyond the realm of science. And, you know, frighteningly, in, in both the East and the West, there is, you know, kind of a decreasing interest in pursuing those inner arts. But as you said, a lot of times the, the progress of the body and the progress of the soul go together. Yes. Yeah, this is very, very true. You know, a lot of people, um, they, they uh, segregate the soul from the body, just like Western medicine breaks the body into systems and thinks that everything's got its own zip code. And you've got a doctor that only does gastroenterology and a doctor that only does brain work and a doctor that only does knees or shoulders or spines and and you know in reality the the soul and the body are are fused just like heads and tails of a coin are part of one coin and without both there's no currency so the you know the 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 soul is is a uh, i i define the soul as consciousness within but when we look at the fact that there's Current science says there's about 30 billion billion biochemical reactions per second within the human body of 100 trillion cells. And it is the consciousness of the soul that is regulating all those interactions. And so if you look at the math on that, it's, it's just mind boggling. I, I agree. And I think that one of the, the ultimate realizations that we have to pursue is the idea that we are the soul and have a body rather yes. than we are the body and the mind and a set of emotions and have a soul. It's the idea of identification. Yes, I tell people all the time, your soul is not in your body. Your body is in your soul. <laughs> exactly. Another demonstration that he did that the monks told me about is one time a famous Olympic sprinter who was very skeptical about Yogananda came to see him at the uh, lake shrine. I mean, at the uh, temple in Encinitas, actually, uh, I used to have my office just down the street from it. Oh, and I actually went, I, I've been, I've actually been there with Sri Chinmoy. 
Oh, is that right? I had my first yeah. samadhi meditating there right on the benches, meditation benches overlooking the ocean. <laughs> uh, that, that is a place for that type of an experience. Yeah, sure. it was a very, very profound experience. And um, uh, that's where he wrote the autobiography of a yogi. Well, so anyhow, the story goes that this, this sprinter came to see him and was quite skeptical and, and kind of being antagonistic to him. So finally, Yogananda says, well, I know you're a very uh, skilled sprinter and very accomplished sprinter. He said, if I could beat you in a running race, would you believe that what I'm saying has more validity? And the guy looked at him with kind of a, you know, like a sheepish, disrespectful grin and said, uh, yes, I would believe it if you could outrun me. So Yogananda walked him down the stairs and the tide was out. And the monk said that there was a great big rock. And then about 40 or 50 meters down the beach was another big rock. And so Yogananda says, how about if we race to that rock and back? And the guy said, okay. And they, and the, and the sprinter got down in his three point stance. And one of the other monks, I said, I guess said, uh, ready, set, go. And the story has it that the sprinter had only taken about three steps and he looked up and Yogananda was already coming back towards him. And it just completely Amazing. blew his mind. And, and after that, he became a devotee. <laughs> Amazing. So, you know, uh, before I move on, um, my soul is a bird of fire. What do you think he's saying there? I, you know, I, I have my own rendition of what he's probably saying, but I love to see what you think. I mean, it, 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 it means something to every single person who hears it. I mean, I, I know that, that, you know, the idea of a, the, the soul being represented by a bird is something in classical uh, mystical philosophy where a bird can move from branch to branch up a tree of consciousness, yes. for example. Yes, and can take a little bit from each plane, but the idea of of the soul being a bird of fire, you know, both illustrates speed, both illustrates intensity, loftiness, and access, and the idea of that soul winging the infinite, you know, it's like being on the outer boundaries of possibility, and at the edge of the realm that's being constantly pioneered by the energy of self-transcendence. Yes. You know, the, 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 the bird, the soul as a, as a bird is, is also uh, heavily uh, stamped into mythology throughout time. And um, the bird of fire is, is also the Phoenix that rises from the ashes. It can't be destroyed by the fire. And it's interesting too, because if you look at alchemy, the fire realm is, is the realm of the archetypes or the ideas of God. Or even if you look at the Kabbalah, uh, things step down into reality from the fire to the air or mental realm to the water or emotional realm, astral realm, into the physical. So the fire is really the point where pure potential or pure source becomes manifest. And then winging the infinite. You know, that that's such a just that alone is such a, a, a doorway to, you know, it, it can. I mean, if you just meditated on what ask your soul, let's go wing the infinite and see where it took you. I think it could make some damn good art and music, don't you? I, I agree. And that that's the interesting thing about this realm of, of modern spiritual masters like Yogananda's lineage of Lahiri, Yukteswar. Uh, not to mention Babaji, but obviously yeah. he's not in, in the physical realm. 
um, masters like Sri Chinmoy who try to share consciousness through a myriad of avenues, whether it's through physical performance, like weightlifting or long distance running, or through poetry or through music. They're looking for vehicles to, to, to help us create the receptivity I was talking about at the beginning. Yes. And to open our, our hearts to those realms of consciousness. You know, I, um, one of the medicine men that I studied in, in my work, who I was very, very captivated by, and just I've read a number of his books. Are you familiar at all with Joseph Rael? No, I'm not. Man, sometime you got to check him out. Go on Amazon sometime and just search his name. And there's a set of uh, CD, uh, DVDs that you can get. Uh, I know most people don't have DVD players anymore, but it's worth it. Uh, it's not cheap. It's like 110 bucks, but this is like a, a five DVD set of his core teachings. And they're absolutely fantastic. I've shared them with a number of my instructors and close friends, and they were all just like, that's the real deal. But uh, Joseph Rael was a Pueblo medicine man who did the sun moon dance 16 times and these guys dance for four days nonstop without food, water, or rest. And in interviews with him, he describes how in their training to become a sun dancer, by the time they can actually complete the dance, they reach a level of spiritual development where they don't need to eat anymore. And he talks about how when he's in the trance state of the dance, he can actually see the flow of energy that's creating the universe that's moving through and manifesting everything. And it picks them, it basically enlivens them so that they can do these feats of, you know, what would be a medical miracle. And, um, you know, I, I know from my own studies and watching your videos that Sri Chinmoy obviously was one of these guys. And I'm just wondering um, could you share what Sri Chinmoy taught you uh, and, and the students about? what life is all about and, and why we are here and from there, what the soul and the spirit are. And, and I'm curious, how did he define mind? I, I think that's a, a, a very, very deep question. And, and one that I, I can just answer from my own experience. Obviously everyone has a different level of evolution uh, in terms of their own past lives and their own experience in this life with consciousness. So each person's purpose is probably slightly different. At the same time, you know, we're all on a quest to return to our source. The evolution of life is really the evolution of consciousness and the ultimate realization that we are the source. Spiritual masters come into being from age to age to help accelerate, accelerate and catalyze people's own journeys towards that self-realization. So Sri Chinmoy was, 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 was no different. You know, he, he really, at least for me, coming from a, a, a Western upbringing, but with an East Indian uh, sensibility from my own parents' religious beliefs, et cetera, you know, I understood that there was a deeper purpose to life. And that was, in essence, understanding what your relationship was with God, with the Supreme. And he would say, ultimately, the relationship would dissolve into realizing that the individual, the soul, the human being is completely one with the Supreme. Yes. As, as it pertains to definitions of, of various planes of consciousness, he, he focused a lot of his 
own, you know, instruction around the heart chakra mm-hmm. um, and, and using that as an access way to the realm of the infinite uh, for his students. That said, you know, the infinite can be reached through a number of different faculties uh, that, that we all possess, the mind being one of them. And his own teacher, Sri Aurobindo, the, the revolutionary turned sage from Pondicherry, South India. I didn't realize he, that was his teacher. That's mind-blowing. Yeah. I've studied Aurobindo quite a lot. And, you know, I'm a big student of, of Ken Wilber's teachings. And that's one of the primary people that Ken Wilber refers to quite a lot. And, yeah, uh, so there you know that in 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 the language of Sri Aurobindo, you know he's talking about realms that he refers to as the supermind, which really have no relation to the the mental p- consciousness that we use day to day. That realm exists in a space of infinite vastness. Yes, um, one might one might say that the the realm of the supermind is like the infinite sky and the realm of the heart is like the infinite ocean. Uh, they both possess silence, and you know, in their entirety, they form a much deeper sense of consciousness and of, of realization. You know, in in my work, I've I started meditating when I was a kid, and then I sought out a Tai Chi master. I was studying um, books, very comprehensive books on martial arts. And one of my books on martial arts listed the ancient lineage of Tai Chi masters. Mm. And the most recent one they listed that's still alive was a man named Master Fong Ha from San Francisco. And I thought, geez, I wonder if this guy's still alive. So I did some research. And sure enough, I managed to track down his phone number and called him. Wow. Told, yeah. And I told him, you know, I'm. And this is back in around 2000. I was working on doing writing my book how to eat move and be healthy and i had seen in my trying to teach western people my typical patients and clients how to do meditation and and some of these very various simple practices that i had learned and used in my own healing and work and their minds were just so all over the place commonly called monkey mind and and I also worked with a bunch of people that had been in Tai Chi for quite a long time, yet I saw even though they'd been in Tai Chi, they still had the same problems. And so I started looking into Tai Chi, and I realized that most people have to go to Tai Chi for a couple of years to get to the point where they're not constantly thinking about the position of their limbs or their body or the movements that they're doing. And I saw that they got very trapped in the intellectual elements of Tai Chi but weren't able to really let go and learn to actually tap into the chi field itself. And so my soul basically instructed me to connect to Fong Ha and to get training from him so that I could take the concepts in Tai Chi and Qigong and meditation and couple them with movement to create very simple uh, exercises that would harmonize the body and bring people into a meditative awareness in such a way that the Western mind could more easily engage it. So I flew up to San Francisco and met with Fong Ha. Kind of a funny story. Uh, when I met him for the first time, the one he answered the door, and the first thought I had is, this guy looks just like Yoda. He's a short Chinese man with probably about 5'2", kind of about the size Yogananda would have been with very broad shoulders and his body still looked, he was like 75 at the time and his body still looked really strong, you know? 
and a, and, and a wide round face and big eyes. And then if I, I, my, I'm in my head going, man, this guy looks just like Yoda. And so I stepped in his door and the first thing I saw was a big poster of Yoda with a lightsaber in his Amazing. hand. And I was, I was trying great. to not crack up, you know, just because the, the synchronicity of it was so wild. In 35 years of professional practice, Paul has earned a reputation for being able to help clients when others have failed. If you listen to the episode featuring skateboard legend Danny Way, you've heard the story behind just one of those cases. That reputation, and all of the learning it took to get Paul there, was hard won. Paul flew all over the world to learn from experts, spent countless dollars on rare or out-of-print books, listened to hundreds of hours of lectures, tested out everything he learned, and devoted many, many hours of putting all the techniques together into one singular system of holistic health. It would take decades to reproduce his system if you started from scratch. Fortunately, you don't have to do that. If it's your calling to be the best health and performance professional that you can be, to become a true master in resolving deep health challenges and helping athletes reach their optimal performance, then you're ready for the Czech Academy. We are thrilled to announce that we are now accepting applications to join this group of dedicated and passionate students into the most structured, comprehensive and affordable way to complete the entire system of Czech training. As a Czech Academy student, you'll grow personally and professionally in ways you never imagined because we've structured out an entire learning process for you designed to ensure you absorb every drop of knowledge in the courses you take and understand exactly how to implement what you've learned. And this truly is the most affordable way to learn the entire Czech system. Each course has been discounted for Academy students, plus you'll receive business training and mentorships that aren't available to any other Czech student, all for an affordable monthly fee. So if you're ready to learn Paul's system of holistic health and truly help people be their healthiest best, if you want to realize your own potential as a holistic health and performance coach, we invite you to apply now for the Czech Academy. Go to checkinstitute.com forward slash academy to get started. And now let's get back to this episode of Living 4D with Paul Check. But he, he, you know, he says, oh, come on in. And he takes me out to his backyard and he says, well, your first exercise is Zen Zung, which means stand like a tree. So he shows me how to get into the posture. And he says, no, you just stick with this for a while. And then he walked away. And I'm back there and time's going by and time's going by and time's going by. And I'm thinking, oh, he's trying to trick me or test me or something. Finally, after over an hour, he come he came out with a big smile on his face. He goes, you did very well. He said, most people don't last more than about a minute or two. <laughs> and uh, so my first gong you know they use the gong system of 100 days of continuous practice and if you missed a day you have to start over from ground one again at day one wow. so he gave my first practice with 100 hours of standing like a tree for an hour a day uh until i'd done 100 days consecutive and then he taught me a technique called the tai chi ruler which i've now taught to countless thousands but ultimately that training became the basis of what I developed in my book, How to Eat, Move, and Be Healthy, that I call zone exercises. And I've had countless students all over the world 
and people reading my books tell me about all the, you know, deep experiences they've had and the openings and healings. And so it's just really amazing how when you get with a master, you can not only get simple techniques that will really open you up, but where I was going with all this, you know, having now been doing Tai Chi for probably 17 years, I studied medical Qigong and took training in that. And I used that for quite a bit and still use pieces of it now and then. But one of my favorite meditations is just to enter into silence. And so I'll just go into silence. But I'm, the reason I'm sharing this with you is, you know, people don't really realize that silence is very, very potent. And it's, it's, I describe it as explosive. You get down into silence and it's, it's paradoxically doing nothing but bursting in every direction at once. I'm wondering what your experience with entering into silence has been. I mean, that, that's, that's it in a nutshell. I mean, the idea of sound being more power than, powerful than silence is a complete misnomer. Um, in terms of like Eastern analogies, people might describe sound and, and you know, that type of outer energy as a wave, whereas silence is the ocean itself. It is, it's, yeah. And I think in quantum it's, physics, it's like it's the zero point field. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm not an expert in quantum physics, but I, I, I trust you in that description. Well, you know, the zero point field is, is the point at which when you go beyond the Planck constant, which is the point at which uh, you, you can't really measure anything, you don't have any atomic structure anymore, you go behind the wall of the atom, so to speak. And so then you enter the quantum foam where, where you're, in, you're both in the vacuum, but as Plotinus said 2,370 something years ago, he said what people don't realize is the vacuum is also the plenum. Though it's empty, it's absolutely full simultaneously. So the zero point field is that place where there's all probabilities and possibilities existing at one time and matter just bursts out of it. Quantum particles just burst out of it spontaneously. And, and then from there, matter is formed. And there we go. That's a, a very, very good description of silence. Yeah. I'm wondering what did Sri Chinmoy teach you that soul and spirit are? You know, from an Eastern standpoint, from a Hindu standpoint, soul and spirit are, are the same word, Atman, A-T-M-A-N. Yes, I'm familiar. And that, re that refers to both the, the individual self, but also the universal self. It's, it's obviously difficult to describe things um, from, in, from the, 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 for the very basic reason that we're talking about singularity, we're talking about duality. Yeah. Um, we're talking about the existence of one. Uh, but when you're in that realm, there is no one. The number one is only defined by the, the existence of other multiples of one, like two and four and three and seven, so on and so forth. Without two, you don't really have an understanding of one. And so in the realm of the soul, it's far beyond the description of, of the mind. It's beyond this level of duality where there's no longer two, but the absence of two doesn't equate to one. It equates to a realm of incredible unity, incredible energy in in Eastern philosophy, we say, you know, that which moves, that which moves not. Um, it encompasses everything and nothing at the same time. Yes, which is very much in line with uh, the Taoist concept of no mind. 
yeah, it's this realm where in Sri Chinmoy's words, no mind, no form, I only exist. And another, another poem of his continues, now ceased all will and thought, the final end of nature's dance, I am it whom I have sought. A realm of bliss, bare, ultimate, beyond both knower and known, a rest immense I enjoy at last. I am the one, the God soul. My spirit aware of all the heights, I am mute in the core of the sun. I barter nothing with time and deeds. My cosmic play is done. That poem, which is entitled The Absolute, one of his poems, I think in, it, 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 it was his attempt as a young boy, um, 13, 14 years old, to describe poetically his first experiences of that ever-transcending beyond, that realm where this bird of fire wings the infinite, the space between everything. I love it. I would imagine being from the Indian tradition, you're familiar with Shankara. Yes. I love what you just said. I mean, for Sri Chinmoy to write a poem like that at 12 or 13 reminds me of Shankara, who started walking around India on foot at eight years old, seeking out gurus and masters to debate with them and never lost a debate. At the same time, it's interesting that you bring up Shankara because he was one of the first masters in millennia to really try to revitalize the, the warrior side of Indian spirituality. As you know, one of India's greatest mystical books, the Bhagavad Gita, took place as a conversation between two warriors on the outer surface, Krishna and Arjuna, at the edge of the greatest battle that Arjuna would have to fight, literally it took place in the in the space between life and death. Yes. Shankara brought back that idea of the strength of the body, the willpower, the dynamism, the force. Swami Vivekananda, uh, Ramakrishna's disciple, continued that. And Sri Chinmoy and other modern masters are, are very much in that lineage. The idea that one can't just sit at the foot of a tree or in a cave and hoard this concept of realization. But you have to go out into the world and not only reveal the existence of these higher planes, you have to find ways to share them and to use your own realization to literally infuse the hearts of, of people around you. Indeed. And, and uh, I think Kabir was right along those lines as well. Since we're speaking about Shankara, Shankara <clears throat> said something quite profound. He said, no man can understand scripture until he is enlightened. And when he is enlightened, he does not need scripture. And, you know, I really believe that there is a deep, deep truth there. And I'm wondering uh, <laughs> if that's true, how much of the problems that we're facing in the world today come from people being programmed in Sunday schools and temples and churches by, uh, shall we say, unenlightened people who are trying to interpret interpret scriptures as facts and telling people what God wants and what God expects of you and that you're going to burn in hell if you touch your genitals or all these other things. It, it's so difficult, right? Especially, you know, knowing what we know about like the more ancient philosophies, um, you know, from, from the East and also from, from, you know, Greek and Sparta and Northern Africa, these things that predate these modern interpretations of one book, the New Testament. Yes. 
And the, the West, in a sense, is extremely childish in its adherence to this one book. In India, we look at Jesus as a Hindu. You know, a, a Hindu effectively is a believer. And, you know, in Hinduism, there are a zillion sects and a zillion different paths. And a Hindu would say, as long as you have faith in something, whether it's science, whether it's plants, whether it's Jesus, Buddha, Muhammad, Krishna, you're a Hindu. Yeah, I love Jesus's, it. Jesus's own pathway to enlightenment, you know, took him to India. It took him to Tibet. It, it, he literally was living on the Silk Road of this tremendous movement of ideas from, you know, Southeastern Europe into India, into the Far East. And we very much look at Jesus as an Oriental. And, and the idea of defining his teachings within a very strict set of parameters effectively established by the, the, the Catholic Church in you know, the, the first millennium, it's really quite shocking. I mean, as we know, Christianity evolved mystical traditions in Northern Africa. Uh, Thomas, Jesus' disciple, is said to be actually from India, uh, which explains his return to India um, after Jesus's crucifixion and his establishment of um, of Christ's path there. And we look at the mystical teachings of Christ. You know, it, the I, the idea of such limited and such kind of like I don't know, like punitive sets of stri- of, of of strictures put around his teachings when his teaching was all love and all heart and much more akin to Krishna's vision of, of, of universal love. It, it, it just shows how, you know, kind of myopic our understanding of a great teacher can be, whether it's Christ or Krishna or anyone else. When we use the mind, we will never understand and we will never realize we will never solve great life's great mysteries. We have, we have to go deeper than the things that divide us. And that requires us to reject that idea of division and use parts of our being that look at unification and to trust those parts of our being. I agree. You can see the confusion. And, you know, I don't have anything against Christianity. I just feel very sad for any religion that becomes corporatized and becomes a system of brainwashing to get people to conform to a system and belong to a system to generate power and income, and uh, it's not a secret, but the Vatican is well known to be the richest corporation in the world, and I've studied the history of religion quite extensively. And you can see the confusion whenever you walk into a Christian church and see Jesus, who is a Middle Eastern man, painted as a white man with blonde hair and blue eyes. You know, at, at, at the same time, you know, from an Eastern perspective, the one thing that unifies us as a global population, a global spiritual population, is the concept of faith. Your faith, no matter what it's in, strengthens my faith. It's like faith is additive and it's put into a global bank that any seeker from any path can draw upon in times of need. So the, the pure devotional faith of Christianity is something that I, 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 I admire quite deeply. At the same time, the problems that Christianity faces that we, we're talking about um, are, are problems that every single religion faces. Absolutely. Each and, each and every religion was started by a mystic. And you know, a mystic, and it's in his or her own purest form. 
And we have to ask ourselves how much of the modern teachings have been not only interpreted, but distorted by people along the way. Well, and yeah. when you return to Christ's words, when you return to you know, the original great texts, it's, it's very easy to see the commonalities. It is. And I have a beautiful book in my library called The Parallel Sayings of Jesus, Buddha, Lao Tzu, and Krishna. And it takes passages from each of their teachings and puts them side by side. And within four or five pages, anybody with some common sense can see they're all saying the same thing. And I find the deeper you go into, I find you have to get past the corporatized elements to get into the mystical teachings. You know, like if you see what's taught in in typical churches and temples, but you start reading mystics like Meister Eckhart or St. Bernard or St. Hildegard or any of Teresa of Avila or St. Francis of Assisi. Exactly. Any of them. And and really they could be any skin color, any race from anywhere at any time. And they're really tapping into the, the, the wellspring of the love, the wisdom and the beauty and the, the truth that comes from source. And I, I, you know, I often encourage my students that are caught in some of these program behaviors. I say, look, just study the mystics of your own tradition and know they're the people that the traditions were not only based on, but they're the people that often risked and lost their lives because they stood up for the fact that what was being taught to people was not the actual teachings, which is kind of a paradox because fundamentalism at its core is really about protecting the core teachings of any given religion so they're not distorted. But what we have today is fundamentalism is actually a distortion of the core teachings that I find you can really only find by studying the mystics. I, I agree. At, at the same time, mystics come to reinterpret, to revitalize, and to, to reconform a path for a more modern set of ideas and a more modern set of tendencies. Um, otherwise, there'd be there'd be no need for continuations of lineages. I mean, if you if you look at Sri Ramakrishna in the late 1800s in Calcutta, his disciple Swami Vivekananda. If you look at Lahiri Babaji, Lahiri Yukteswar, Yogananda, each one is coming and adding something new to the canon of mysticism. Um, and these mystics aren't just important to renew the vibration, the spiritual vibration of Earth. They're important to slightly readjust the the ancient paths to be more beneficial to people who've got a, a different mindset. Well, I think they're also very important because like, if you look at, say, the Bible, it's really, uh, it's an outdated myth. And when mystics and, and evolved spiritual teachers come, I think part of their work is to bring the myth into alignment with the needs of the people in the place and the time that they're entering into. I'm, 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 to- I'm totally with you. You know, we, we're, t- we're talking about the, the spiritual universe constantly transcending itself. Yes. Every aspect of spirituality is growing. You know, we're, we're not following the same strict rigors that people necessarily did 30,000 years ago. Life has evolved. Consciousness has evolved. The actual idea of a supreme being, that supreme being itself, that that entity has evolved and grown and expanded. Absolutely. I, I totally agree. And that's one of the things that 
you know, people debate me on every now and then I'll run across someone in a lecture or something and, and I'll explain if you evolve, God evolves the creation, everything that we see and know of as the universe or life itself is the embodiment of the potential of the divine so that we can interact with the divine, which is one of the reasons I tell people love and care for this planet because it is the divine itself. You, you, if you live this life where you're destroying nature and destroying each other and you think that the divine is somewhere else, then you've missed the whole point. Very well said. I, I recently read a poem of Sri Chinmoy's where he said, or an aphorism, I should say, he said, Mother Earth must be treated with utmost humility. Mother Earth must be treated with utmost humility. And if you look at our relationship to everything around us, it's more than often um, driven by arrogance or this idea of possession or control. And the idea of humility being the basis for which we interact with Earth is something very ancient. Um, and it's something that we tend to forget. In, in my latest movie, in 3100 Run Become, you know, our main Navajo character expresses that idea in, in his own philosophy of merging spirituality with running. Uh, he says from a, a Southwestern Native American perspective, he said, when we run, our feet are praying to Mother Earth. Right, I remember uh, that. We're breathing, we're breathing in Father Sky. You know, we're asking them, we're praying to them for their blessings to help us become better people. And so it's this act of the body supplicating to higher and deeper energies through an activity like running. It's the idea of using an activity like running to humble oneself in front of nature in a prayerful way, asking, beseeching, and not expecting. And at, at the same time, looking at this activity of running as a teacher in and of itself. Yeah, absolutely. And that's one of the things I loved about Yogananda's philosophy, and I see it clearly in Sri Chin Chinmoy's philosophy, is that exercise was included as part of the process of spiritual development. And it is in other religions too. You know, there's various uh, elements of Buddhism that have, uh, you know, physical components into them. There, you know, Kung Fu was actually started by Shaolin monks as a means to protect themselves from people, but trying this, the art was developed so you could uh, basically stop people that were trying to harm you, but not harm them. And so they ended up spending a lot of time and energy developing a, a you know, a very effective defensive art. And so, you know, when you look at a lot of the Western religions, they've, they've cut out the element of the importance of holistic diet and learning to use food to nourish the body, to keep it healthy. And they've lost the element of exercise. And so it, it's become so intellectual. It's, it's, it's really, you know, Jung said intellectualism is a common cover-up for fear of direct experience. And, and I see that through our university systems. I see it in our religious systems. I see it in science. It's as though people have gotten so caught up in ideas that they don't distinguish the difference between an idea and an actual experience. You know, in, in the classic sense, the, the, the body is obviously a temple. At the same time, you know, not only can we not pursue spiritual activities when we're sick or we're weak, but we actually end up being 
totally disconnected from the truth that we're trying to to pursue. You know, the body is an is an incredibly important tool in our own spiritual arsenal, and most modern interpretations of ancient religions like discard that. At the same time, just from the the, the sociological standpoint, like when you're in a gym and someone's spotting you or you're spotting someone else, you're not thinking about their religious background. You're not thinking about their political beliefs. When I'm running on a trail or in a race, I've never once thought of or, or, or even questioned, you know, someone else's background or creed or ethnicity. It's like there's a, a deep sense of oneness when we're trying to pursue physical goals. And that in and of itself helps us to, to expand past these realms that, that divide us, like the ones that the mind creates. And it, in essence, it's like physical pursuits can connect more directly with the soul's reality than most religions care to even pursue. Yes. I think, too, that I, I believe the earth is a, a, a schoolyard for souls to learn to use the infinite power and potential of the divine, and that we come here where we're in a material body encased in, in a material environment where we where th- change happens very slowly. For example, when Hitler tried to take over the world, he had to amass a million people, and it because the world is physically based. It allows us time to interact with each other, and and the creative forces cannot act so quickly. Um, so the 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 other thing is is that our bodies allow us to have the the beautiful and sacred sense of individuality, and without that, we wouldn't have the experience of love. It's it's because. Sanjay is Sanjay and Paul is Paul, that right now we can exchange love together and relationship together. And it, the divine creates this beautiful illusion of individuality. But as soon as we begin to engage each other in relationship and in love, there's the flow. I, I define love as the flow of energy and, inf- and information through empathic and compassionate connection to self or other. And so when we realize that our bodies are actually vehicles for expressing love in relationship and love in creativity and love in supporting each other and love in solving the challenges that are inherent in relationship to persons, places, and things, then, as you said, the body becomes sacred. It becomes literally a temple of the divine. And, you know, you mentioned St. Francis of Assisi earlier. Uh, I think you were referring to him, but when people used to go to St. Francis of Assisi and they would, they would ask him, how do I find God? He would say, what you are looking for is what's looking. And I think that's the most profound or a profound and beautiful expression of the divine. I'm, I'm totally with you. And, you know, we, we've been talking about the pursuit of, of infinite unlimited consciousness but some of the, the, the greatest masters, Sri Ramakrishna, for example, said that he chose to live in the realm of, 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 we'll say, duality, where there were separate individuals, because in that way, he could see his beloved, the supreme being, manifested in not just a, an, a realm of infinity, but in the hearts, minds, bodies, souls of tens, if not dozens, if not hundreds, if not thousands 
of individuals that surrounded him. And that perspective of love puts the entire, quote, cosmic play into, into real focus. It really does. I also define love as consciousness becoming aware of itself. And I think as we take responsibility for listening to and nurturing our bodies and we learn to respect our bodies, we also learn to support others and we learn through our own challenges how we can help others because whenever we've made it through a challenge, we've gained wisdom and we've we can recognize our challenge in anybody else. For example, anyone that's healed themselves of gluten intolerance can immediately recognize another person with gluten intolerance because the signs and symptoms are very obvious once you've healed gluten intolerance or most any other thing. So I think it, it gives us a chance to really, um, well, to, to enter into the, 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 the temple that we're born into. And I think that the way we relate to ourselves mirrors the way we relate to nature itself and, and life itself. And one of the challenges with the Abrahamic religions is so much disdain for the body. And you study some of the historical aspects and there was a lot of torturing going on and a lot of like a, a body abuse and, and, and disrespect and abuse of women. And I think that, that once we departed from the, the teachings of the actual founders of the great religions and the mystics, uh, people got so confused that <clears throat> now they're projecting their shadow onto the world and, and their own inner pain is actually uh, being projected into nature and, and, and the abuse of life and, and, and thinking that the world is just some kind of a resource we can use for ourselves. And it's like a, a supermarket that's got no end to its supply. And ultimately, the beautiful thing that I see coming is that we're bringing ourselves into a situation where it's going to have to be all hands on deck for our own survival because Mother Nature is uh, coming to a point now where if we don't all get together worldwide and start doing things like repurposing our militaries to clean up the soil and clean the water and clean the air and enforce that corporations don't do destructive things to the planet. And, you know, we're now at a point where a, a nuclear meltdown in Japan or in Russia, well, the radiation poisoning goes all over the world. We, we are, we're now aware through science that we're actually affecting each other with everything that we do. And I think that sort of the, the dark night of the soul we're going through is the, is bringing us to a place where we have to get past all of our religious, social, racial biases of all types. Because if we don't come together as a family and care for each other on the planet, well, let's just say school's going to be out for a while. I, I agree. I mean, that, I think that that brings us back to the concept of treating the world, Mother Nature, each other with a sense of humility. You know, we, we know that the Earth has has survived massive asteroid uh, explosions. Yeah, life hasn't. So it the, the idea of us being flicked off the Earth like someone just flicks an ant off off their their forearm is pretty much the destiny that our our society is choosing. It it, the, it is Earth, yes. Earth is going to live on. Well, absolutely, it, yes. It, That's why I say school will be out. <laughs> yeah, it might take yeah. a million years to rehab for the next school, but you know, um, 
you know, we could go about this a lot of ways. My, my, my key point, though, is that I think, you know, Napoleon Hill said behind every uh, cloud of gray is a silver lining. And I think, you know, the word religion means religio or to link to, to connect to each other, to, to realize our wholeness, not, not to celebrate our wholeness and our, our commonalities, not fight over our differences. And I think that the cloud, the silver lining behind the cloud of gray, that all the scientific materialism and racism and all the things that divide us is that we're now coming into a situation where the way we're handling the world is leading to, you know, well, it's leading to the greenhouse effect. It's leading to uh, all the things I talked about with destruction of the, the various resources that us and nature depends upon. And so I think we're really br being brought into a, a situation where we will have to take responsibility for wielding the power that we wield. And Jung beautifully says, no man is fully alive until he has the power to destroy himself. The question is, will we realize that we are fully alive right now because we have the power to destroy ourselves, or do we have to kill each other and the planet, at least nature, before we realize what we had? I mean, there's an aphorism of, of Sri Chinmoy's that some people attribute to, to Jimi Hendrix, but it just turns out that Hendrix was a fan of, of this particular saying of, of Sri Chinmoy's, where he said, when the power of love replaces the love of power, man and woman will have a new name, God. Amen. And that, that's, that's, that's the crux of, 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 of what you're saying too. It's like, do you want to love power or do you want to be harnessed by the power of love? They're two diametrically opposed realities. One leads us to destruction. One leads us to enlightenment. And the choice is so simple, but unfortunately, it's a choice that either people are, are unaware of or, you know, don't want to make. Well, it's, it's, it, you see, the thing is, Sanjay, is to make a choice like that, you have to be conscious. And I think one of the challenges we have with scientific materialism, the education systems that we're in were built by plantation owners specifically to train the children of slaves to do repeated procedures, not be creative, and to follow orders. Ken Wilber explains that very beautifully when you look at the history of our education systems. Uh, religion is, uh, unfortunately, corporate religion is very much a uh, system of programming people to behave exactly how they want them to behave. And we have, you know, the myth of modern man is, is consumerism. And people don't realize that we're actually trying to fill a spiritual emptiness by buying and buying and buying and consuming and consuming. But we're, we're literally reaching the bottom of the barrel where nature can't really survive the myth of consumerism. And it's interesting too, because one of my favorite definitions of myth is myth is something that never happened, but is happening all the time. And so when you look really into the silence, and into the mysteries of what God is all about and what's at the core of, of all religions, well, the mystery is God. And there's no objective way to define what is or isn't God. You can't do that objectively, just like you can't weigh and measure love. But what's happening all the time is this expression of love. 
And in order for us to see it and to realize it and to participate it, we've got to be able as a world community to break out of our unconscious programming and to wake up and say, wait a minute, you know, the supermarket's not going to be full forever. Wait a minute, we can't abuse animals in massive corporate farms and we can't destroy the earth and we can't, you know, we, we, we have to, like, we have plenty of science showing that plants are very sentient beings. We've got an entire tradition of shamanism explaining that the medicines that they made, many of which were stolen by the drug manufacturers and then um, remanufactured synthetically as medicines, but people don't realize that a lot of the drug formulas actually came from shaman who got their formulas from the plant consciousness, from the plant beings themselves. So if we if we don't get out of our slumber, which we're being programmed into by corporations at all time to keep buying and buying, buying, then unfortunately the pain teacher is going to arrive and we're going to have to, uh, you know, we're going to have to go through a conscious awakening through the sacrifice that really goes right back to Christ on the cross. Powerful stuff. Yeah. I mean, you know, when it comes down to it, the first step is consciousness and understanding that there is a different way to live and that there is a path to happiness. And that that's effectively the job of spiritual masters to kind of create that inner cry to awaken individual individuals' hearts. But then it's beholden to the rest of us to be willing to share the techniques for self-discovery, whether it's prayer, whether it's meditation, whether it's some other sort of contemplative activity. You know, those of us who have been able to, to see the light, so to speak, from a humble standpoint, and to have been given the gift of, of the pursuit of self-realization, as you said, you know, it's beholden upon us to be of service to other people and give them the tools that they might need for their own inner awakening. Yes. I, I think it's, you know, <clears throat> as challenging as all this is to look at, you know, I come from a farming background and I studied soil science and agronomy and I spent my whole life, I've been doing this for 33 years and I've spent my life in intensive study and spiritual practice and learning and growing myself. And I look at all this and I, I see that I, what I'm saying is, as confusing and scary as it can be, and as wild of a journey as we're all on together, what gives me solace each day, what keeps me grounded is because I have deep faith in and love for the divine, for the wholeness the, from the, the unspeakable. For, for which all this thing we call life emerges, and I trust the perfection behind it. I, as much as I find a lot of the things that are going on in the world challenging, I also see it as a means by which I deepen my spirituality with the trust in the divine to know that there is perfection behind it. And as scary as it is, Sometimes I just have to bow down and say, I don't understand a lot of these things. I don't understand why people keep doing things, even though they know it's not working. I don't know why we have 
political leaders like Donald Trump wanting to build walls and 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 cap capture kids at the border and this, some of the absolutely kind of crazy antiquated things that are going on. All I all I can do is do my best, like you do with your films and and your interviews, and and my life to share the best that I have in me and do my best every day to heal the parts of me that need to be healed and hope that I can leave the world knowing I did my best to leave it a little bit better place and, and to inspire others to do the same. That that's beautiful. I mean, ultimately the Supreme loves the world infinitely more than we ever could. It's his or her creation. Yes. And you know, if our, if our source is all love, all compassion, you know, how can we be otherwise? Yeah, so that's sort of the, the spiritual journey is to, to, to dig deeper, to get under the surface of the trappings of the material life and, and the intellectual, you know, silliness and confusion and to get down deeper where the sweetness really is. And, and I think that we've developed a culture that's so busy trying to make money and so busy trying to, you know, look the part or masquerade as a wealthy person or, you know, wear Kobe Bryant shoes or whatever it might be that we've, we've really gotten caught in, in sort of, you know, like the concept of the lure, you know, the fish gets attracted to the flash of the lure. In fact, one of the actual meanings of the word sin is to shine. And I think that we've got caught in the shine, but we have lost touch with that which is truly luminous that's a it's beautifully beautifully said well sanjay it's been absolutely amazing to talk to you i i really you know i uh, many i have many students that come from india to go through my training and i'm always so respectful of how powerful their minds are and how deep they go into their studies and how committed they are and and I really feel that in your honesty and in your in your you know the depth of your knowledge and your commitment to life and to love and to the masters and and I just uh, I would love to interview you again so we can talk more about uh, some of these documentaries you've produced and and a lot of the questions I wanted to ask you. Uh, where can people find more? Like uh, I would just say right now that for those of you listening. Um, his uh, Sanjay's movie, The Ocean Monk, is one that's really lovely. And then we've got um, Challenging Impossibility, which shows a lot of Sri Chinmoy's strength feats and interviews with a lot of famous people like Carl Lewis talking about. I loved how Carl Lewis said when Sri Chinmoy lifts something heavy like that, it, it feels as though gravity and time just seem to stop. <laughs> Exactly. And then uh, my, my, my last movie, 3100 Run and Become, yes. about the world's longest running race, uh, 3100 miles. It's available on iTunes, Amazon, Google Play. Uh, my other do feature-length documentary, Food Chains, about farm worker exploitation, uh, produced by Eva Longoria and Eric Schlosser. That's available on Hulu. Yes, I, I think that's a very important movie. So thank you so much for sharing with me. I... I I, oh, it was an honor, Paul. It really was. I've been a fan of yours for many years now. Well, thank you. And to be connected to you via Sal and Justin 
and Adam was just a delight. Yeah, let's do this again. You know, let's. Uh, I would love that. Let's have another rendezvous. I'll save the questions I had so we can do a, a continuation. And uh, let's just uh, let's dance together and share our love with the world. I'd love that. Thanks so much, Paul, and my best to your better half, Penny. Yes, I actually have two better halves. I have a Penny and an Angie. To, then my, my best to Penny and to Angie. Thank you. Lots of love. And, and again, thanks for joining us today on Living 4D with Paul Check, Sanjay, I, I feel you beyond name and beyond place just in my heart. So thank you. That's very sweet of you to say, Paul. Thank you. Thanks, buddy. Thank you for listening to Living 4D with Paul Check and today's guest, Sanjay Rowe. You can watch 3100 Run and Become by visiting the website www.3100film.com. Follow Sanjay on Instagram at Mr. Sanjay R or at 3100film. Follow Paul on Instagram and Twitter at Living 4D Podcast or on his YouTube podcast channel, youtube.com forward slash living 4D with Paul Check. You can watch more on Paul's blog at paulchecksblog.com and the Czech Institute's blog at checkinstitute.com forward slash blog. Music